Hi, I'm Nyla Boodoo, host of One Big Thing from Axios. Every week, I talk to leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. We're not going to be changing the world if we don't take some risk. We can't live burying our heads. This technology is here. We're going about it the wrong way because we don't know the stuff to go for. Interviews, ideas, and context, all in 20 minutes or less. That's one big thing from Axios. Find us every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to a bonus episode of What Could Go Right. I'm Emma Varvalukas, Executive Director of the Progress Network. This episode was recorded from a live event the Progress Network hosted on April 7th, 2021. Please enjoy. This event tonight is co-hosted by Arizona State University, as well as Future Tense, which is an initiative based at Slate Magazine, where they cover trends about the future. Uh, We're here today with Sylvia M. Burwell. She is the president of American University. Michael Crowe is the president of Arizona State University, so two uh, very innovative pioneering universities um, that are bringing us into this next wave of higher education. And last but certainly not least, Scott Galloway, who wears many hats. Um, He's a professor of marketing at NYU Stern, and he's going to be especially speaking from his perspective today as the founder of Section 4, which is a new platform for accessible business education. And our moderator tonight is Zachary Carabell, who's the founder of the Progress Network, uh, a prolific author. With that, I'm going to turn it over to Zachary, who's going to get this ball rolling. So thanks, everyone. Thank you so much, Emma. And thanks, Sylvia and Michael and Scott in advance for joining me tonight, joining us. Um, you know, book, book promo, it's behind my my left shoulder, your right. I think there's something a little bit odd about a book about the history of capitalism being propped up by the Buddha, but we can deal with that oddity at another time. So I founded the Progress Network and Emma's been leading this, as some of you know, with the spirit of, we pay way too much attention in our contemporary culture to all the things that could go wrong. And if the sum of all our fears comes true, it won't be for lack of attention to it. But we're also not necessarily paying enough attention to what could go right and to the degree to which a lot of us are involved and a lot of thinkers and doers are involved in the problem solving of trying to create the future that we want to live in and that we want our children to live in, uh, especially given that that future is unwritten and and it's up to all of us to create a constructive one. And there's almost nothing more than higher education, which is, I suppose, in in nature, a more forward-looking, potentially optimistic thing, right? Why bother getting a degree if the world is going to be uh, go to hell in a handbasket in ten years? You 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 go to school, you try to enrich yourself, you try to figure out what you're going to do with yourself, your life, and train. Presumably, because one believes that there is a world to be worked in and constructed, and that that process of going to school is an integral aspect of being launched on a more constructive path, or at least in theory. Uh, you know, I speak as someone who was an academic, who left academia somewhat 
in a somewhat disillusioned way, more disillusioned about my own role within it than disillusioned with academia writ large. And I'm sure part of it was Michael wasn't around at ASU. Sylvia was was still making her way through various things and eventually into government and then it, at to, into American University. Um, and Scott was just a you know a twinkle in our collective eye. But uh, there are real challenges in higher ed. And what I want to start with is kind of to ask each of you to address the following, because I, I think it's fascinating. I, I wrote a piece in uh, in August for Time magazine about what I thought then was the sort of unworkable equation of lots of universities trying to bring people, bring students back to campus in the midst of a pandemic, partly in order to justify the, the non-academic portion of the economics of higher education, namely the room and the board, and, and that that was a necessary product of the, the strange economics of a lot of higher ed. What, what I don't think I expected and what I wanna ask all of you about is the degree to which this is not, at least for many schools, um, been an implosion year, but in many ways has been an accelerant year. And it's, you know, whether it's admissions being up 10 to 30% at top tier schools because of the end of, of uh, standardized testing requirements or uh, you know, many other schools like ASU also seeing a, a great boon of, of students, whereas the next, you know, a lot of the other tier community colleges, the Cal State system actually saw a contraction. So I guess my question for all of you is one, is this just a kind of an anomalous year? Um, is this the COVID year and we shouldn't be extrapolating future trends? Uh, is this its own higher ed equivalent of this year saw the winners win and 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 those who are struggling struggle more and again is that is that this year or is this as this accelerated trends in place um and is there anything positive about that dichotomy that's opened up particularly if you think it's going to be positive so i don't know sylvia why don't you start i mean anyone could start but i think you've all been thinking about this yeah so i would actually characterize this year and COVID as an accelerant and an accelerant to sort of the fundamental concepts that you're talking about in terms of the progress network and going to the future of what higher education looks like and it, when i say an accelerant i think what we're going to see more and more of is what i like to say is the consumer at the center um, of higher education that we are focused on the basics of um, affordability, access, and quality, and that drive to those things, and that being what shapes what students are, are coming to and what they're doing. And one of the places where at American University where we've seen a large increase is in two of our uh, premier programs, our School of International Service, our School of Public Affairs, and people are coming and they're more focused. I think that they're thinking about the value proposition and they're thinking about how they are going to use this next step in their post-secondary education. So I think it is an accelerant to change. I think the questions of what we're going to do, all of us in higher ed, um, to make sure we're meeting the consumer where they are. We're thinking about the whole student, student thriving. We're thinking about um, what it is. We're thinking about the affordability issues. And that's what I think is going. we're going to see over the period of time in terms of this year is speeding us along. How should you use technology? What is the importance of a residential experience? How do people get access at different times and different places for what they want? All of those things are going to move forward. Hmm. Michael? 
Yeah, I think I agree with uh, Sylvia. Accelerant year is definitely not anomalous. It is basically exemplar and exemplar of where we're headed. So you get 8 billion people plus on the planet. You shrink the economy of the planet down to picosecond interactions. You uh, allow everyone to travel and move around. You interface our species with every other species, with every complexity that you can imagine. And lo and behold, you get complexification. And so uh, some institutions of higher education will adjust to that. Uh, we took this as a year where we are definitively a, a, a greatly transformed institution in the last year. Uh, new methods of teaching, new technologies that we're investing in, new ways of reaching out, new ways of connecting to communities. Uh, thousands of our faculty trained in new ways to teach and learn. Uh, 10,000 K-12 teachers that we brought in, 40,000 high school students that we brought in, in in some of our advanced stuff that we have going on. And so I would say to sum it up for us is that during this pandemic, we not only, you know, we shut off the force fields around ASU that were keeping people out uh, and uh, unnecessarily and uh, uh, undemocratically keeping them out. We've now not only shut those force fields off forever, in this last year, we dug them up and threw them away. So we don't have any force fields anymore. Uh, we just launched our uh, ASU knowledge enterprise, learning enterprise, and academic enterprise that is organizing the university in three different functional ways of operating, one of which is completely geared toward uh, you know, finding learning assets for any learner anywhere drawn from our same teaching, learning, and discovery environment, simultaneously operating in an in-person environment on campus, and then also being available with no force fields, no force shields to uh, somebody that needs what we do. And so uh, anomalous, no, accelerating, yes, accelerant, yes, uh, unbelievable complexity ahead of us on every dimension. And so this is just a taste of it. Scott, I mean, you've been sort of vocally critical of a lot of the, the traditional framework, right? And you started something to create a less traditional one. What's your, your take on all this? I know you wrote about this sort of mid-pandemic, but I don't know if, where that has evolved since. Uh, yeah, I, I generally believe, and there's exceptions. I think Sylvia and uh, Michael are kind of doing God's work around expanding their enrollments. But generally speaking, I think higher ed has moved from being the greatest upward lubricant in the middle class to being the enforcer of a caste system. And uh, I think those trends are accelerating. And if you look at when innovation or digital technology comes into any sector, the effect, the static effect across any sector where it sees a massive influx of technology or innovation, so to speak, is a flight to quality or a concentration of power. Amazon brings technology to retail. They've added more market capitalization in the last 10 years than all of European retail is worth. Google and Facebook come in and add uh, technology to uh, marketing or advertising, and they lose or gain the value of WPP, IPG, Omnicom, and Publicy in a trading day. And we're seeing the same thing happen here. We're seeing the elite universities uh, application smile alma mater Berkeley are up, I think, 24% in one year. And so there's this dramatic flight to quality. The most frightening thing, though, about this flight to quality, if you will, is that whereas Amazon wants to go to 83% of U.S. households have Prime and Google wants to be, you know, working with the 
biggest hundred thousand companies in America, that those quality quote unquote elite institutions no longer see themselves as public servants. They see themselves as luxury brands. And every year the Dean stands up and brags that we didn't turn away 90% of our applicants. We turned away 94%, which in my view is tantamount to the head of a housing shelter, a homeless shelter bragging that we turned away 94% of the people who showed up last night. So what that will do is feed into the tier two colleges and give them more pricing power to sell a Hyundai for a Mercedes like price and the wheel spins and will continue to affect a transfer of one and a half trillion dollars going to one six, going to one eight, praying in the hopes and dreams of the middle class. Now, the good news is I think there might be some disruptors. Uh, I think that both Sylvia and Michael could be described as disruptors who haven't lost the script that see education's role as an upward lubricant for the middle class is still where we sh where we should be. But the net effect here could be disastrous, where there's a, an accretion to even more power to the elite universities who have essentially no desire to expand their seats, increasing excess demand such that the tier, U, tier two universities can charge ridiculous prices and, you know, and the wheel spins, so to speak. So I wanted to push back on that. And I want Sylvia's thoughts on this. You, you, the analogy of, of uh, the advertising market getting concentrated in tech land and thereby dwarfing the legacy players like WTPP and Omnicon is totally true. But it's also true that like those markets are much more fluid. So a company like Trade Desk can come in and suddenly also be the, the combined size of the entire legacy ad industry. And it just started a year ago. You can't redo that in higher education, right? You can't just the, the, the entry costs are a little higher and the barriers are a little tougher. And I guess I wonder, Sylvia, I mean, I don't know. Do you spend any time or what time do you spend being concerned about what that, you know, the top 50 universities think in terms of, of competitiveness? Or are you or is or is your is your eye elsewhere? So I think that, you know, Scott uh, has articulated a, a very real potential problem. And I think this is going to become what we are going to see as, you know, Michael and I view the world and the accelerant. I think we would all, we would agree that actually it's not about exclusion. It's about excellence. That that's like, we, we're not about the exclusion that that's not the goal or the, the thing here. And I think this question of the market, what I believe is that the market will become more differentiated and that we have to have a world where the consumer, in order to prevent what Scott just described, um, being the dominant force of the next 10 years in terms of higher ed, we're really going to have to focus on how we think about higher education really and truly from this issue of access and affordability and quality. And to do that, I think we actually have to think beyond the traditional approaches of everything from uh four-year degrees to, to, you know, two-thirds of the nation do not have undergraduate degrees. And, and in the next 10 years, that number is, we want that number to change. And the number is moving and we are moving. And when Michael's got the big numbers that he has, um, that is going to help move it. But we, at the same time, we have to think about people need what they want, when they want it, how they want it. And that, that the concept of lifelong learning, the concept of post-secondary education being something that people do in different ways at different times and that we are serving those needs in higher education are what we're going to have to do. I think Scott's point is fair. I, I think there is a, um, you know, there is a top tier 
that um, if they are not a part of this increasing access, but when we think about one of the things we were talking about, those application numbers, we know community college applications, uh, we know those numbers are down. We know that the numbers of some um, underrepresented minorities in terms of applications are down. We know that uh, the financial aid forms, um, not as many of those are being filled out, which um, indicates socioeconomically that those folks aren't coming in the numbers. And so I just think we all have to focus. And when you ask what I focus on, of course, I focus on American University, but we're part of the whole system of providing post-secondary education. And, you know, one of the big things that we focused on, my chief online officer started the day that we uh, put everyone online at American University, because I really do believe that while we're going to be excellent at the traditional for your face-to-face residential college. That's what we do. We do that well. We have to extend that so that we are creating greater access through other means and mechanisms so that we can try and push against the forces that Scott described. Michael, I know you've got, you've yeah. got a lot a lot to say about all this. Yeah, yeah. So thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, yes. <laughs> so let me just say that, you know, uh, I agree with uh, Scott's, uh, characterization of the system being seriously messed up, but let me augment how seriously messed up it is. So, so we have an entire higher education system where the coin of the realm is scarcity. We have an entire coin, a uh, uh, higher education system where status is derivative of exclusion. Well, that might be fine for small honors colleges in private universities or, you know, uh, uh, institutions that, uh, you know, are just going to have a few undergraduates and some professional schools and they're going to manage it with their own resources and make all that work and bring in, you know, only the upper couple percent of high school uh, students to that. But uh, in the public universities and some private universities that have a different view, like America does, uh, you know, the rest of us have got to take on the task of democracy building. And in democracy building, it only works if the educational attainment of the population continues to rise, particularly as the more modern knowledge-driven economy moves forward. And so what we have now is that a situation wherein because of that status, and so, you know, everybody calls these things, uh, Zachary, you, you say it, I sometimes say it, you know, the top universities. The top universities are those that only admit students from high school with A averages. That's how you get to be a top university. And so what we've decided to do is to basically prove that that's not the case so that we could break out of the stranglehold that the old British model of elitism has then regained its strength in the United States, not in hereditary uh, granting of social status through uh, what family you're born into, but now through what school you go to. Uh, And so that has to be seriously attacked. And so that's the reason that not only have we gone since I've been in office from 40,000 students uh, attending ASU to 150,000 students uh, 10 years ago from 6,000 students in engineering to 25,000 students this year in engineering. But we've also become one of the top five research universities in the country that doesn't have a medical school. And so we're accelerating our research activities, accelerating our scholarship, accelerating our mission so that people can't continue to perpetrate something which at the end of the day, if it's not checked, and that is the notion that if you go to Lamborghini, think of that as a as a as a private college or a private university. You go to the Lamborghini family and you buy your Lamborghini for two hundred and thirty thousand dollars. Then you're somehow a great person because you're able to get the Lamborghini from the Lamborghini family. Well, we also have to have Volkswagen. You know, we have to be we have to be uh, uh, manufacturing all of these different pathways to success in the future. And so, 
So for me, you know, the, the, the task here is we've got to stop comparing apples and oranges. We've got to start thinking about missions and mission assignments. We've got to start, start holding public universities and some private universities that take large amounts of public resources accountable for their outcomes. Uh, we've got to drive innovation and drive technology forward, or we're, we're, we're going to basically revert back to, oh, I see you went to Queens, Cambridge. So therefore you're set. You know, all all 300 of you that went to King's Cambridge or Queen's Cambridge, you know, last year, that kind of thing. And so we we can't work that way across the scale of the United States. I mean, look, you're, you're totally right in the sense that what top means in the parlance, <clears throat> other than the rankings of U.S. News and World Report or, or a few other places, is uh, status and selectivity. It has very little yes. to do with educational quality. It has very little to do with educational outcome. Well, no, they, 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 the, the, some of those rankings throw in graduation rate. And I'd say if you admit someone with a 1520 SAT score and a 4.0 grade point on a 4.0 scale, they probably have a pretty good chance of doing okay in, an, in a college. And so, but that, that's not what was meant for it to work. That's not how it's meant to work. But it does raise the question. I'm interested, Scott, because you started this new venture and you've been thinking about this. Um, and look, this is kind of the you know the big question that's best uh, uh, just discussed for a very long and languid amount of time rather than a very short Zoom amount of time. But it's like, what is the actual point of a college degree? I wrote about this 20 years ago when I left higher education and wrote a book called "What's College For?" A question I posed and and didn't answer. And uh, you know, it does raise this question of is it is it credentializing? Is it some sort of entree ticket? Is it supposed to carry with it a set of skills? And you know, so what what is your goal when you're trying to do something new? And is part of the problem that everybody's trying to do a little bit of everything rather than a few places trying to really focus on one of those? The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you want to work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I think full stop that we are, at least at NYU, we're in the business not of educating, not of socializing. We're in the business of credentialing. And what would effectively are is corporate America said, we'll pay a, we'll pay a graduate of the business school $140,000. It's probably worth 100000 but your HR department 
posing as an admissions department does a lot more diligence on these individuals and makes them jump through so many hoops that you are a fine filter and your exclusion combined with our fetishization on hiring only people from elite universities creates this caste system that we're all sort of benefiting from. So I would argue that the primary benefit is we're in the business of certification. The the kind of insidious antichrists here are one, US News and World Report rewarding status and compensation largely driven on exclusivity and rejection rates. Uh, and that is the, the rankings uh, have, uh, they've been so terrible for society by creating one metric that said, we're gonna push you up in the rankings if you reject more and more people. And this is, I, mean, I make no money in this sector, uh, I like what Sylvia said. I'm going to get off the phone and I'm going to send her some money. I lose money by doing my half-baked research in this bullshit. This is really personal for me. When I applied to UCLA, there was a 60% admittance rate and I was unremarkable. My mother was a secretary and I had a 3.2 GPA. I had 1,100 SATs. And they called me, they had 60% administrator and they let me in after I appealed. And they said, you're not qualified, but you're a native son of California, so we're gonna let you in. And I, re I rewarded the vision of the Regents of UC and California taxpayers with a 2.27 GPA from UCLA. And then I went on to apply to Berkeley and the admissions director called me and said, you don't deserve to be here, but we think you have a great future, so we're gonna let you in. And that created an upward spiral for me, and I'm gonna pay $11 million in federal income taxes this year. So I would argue it was not only philanthropic, it was a great investment in America. And slowly but surely, higher ed has come to represent America, and that we've decided our collective goal as a country is to take the 1% and turn them into billionaires, whereas it should be to take the bottom 90% and give them a shot at being the top 10%. And this year, UCLA's admissions rate isn't going to be 60%. It's going to be 9%. So the exclusivity reward is terribly dangerous. And also, corporations have to start creating on-ramps for the two-thirds of young people who do not go to college and the greatest income earning, the greatest platforms for financial security in the history of mankind, the U.S. corporation, have to fall out of love with Chanel and Hermes posing as Stanford and Harvard. If we don't get an opportunity, uh, to, if these companies don't fall out of love with elite universities, universities are just following where the money goes, and that's U.S. corporations who only recruit now at elite universities. So we need to totally reverse rankings and say, are you adding any value to society? That might be a component of the rankings. And then two, we need to figure out a way to get corporations to commit to hiring more people that maybe don't have a college degree. But this is, I think this has literally become um, a huge societal problem when the, the Harvard's total admission freshman class is 1,400 people and they have the GD, they have an endowment that, that's the GDP of El Salvador. They're not a nonprofit. They're a hedge fund educating the children of their investors. Where is the morality in that? Stanford's Stanford's endowment has gone from one billion to thirty billion in the last thirty years. Their applications have trebled. They haven't increased their freshman class one seat. So I don't want to make general statements about how corrupt and morally fucked up 
the uh, faculty and chancellors of this university are who every day ask themselves one question, how do I reduce my accountability and increase my compensation? There are universities, Cal State, the University of California, who are doing God's work and expanding their enrollments. But we have totally lost the script in higher education. And by the way, my university is totally complicit in this bullshit. So this year at UCLA, I got 110,000 applications for you know 6,000 spots. But in terms of those who are, uh, so Michael, you've, I think between what you did years ago with Starbucks in terms of education that is that is driven by the utility and application for society to restructuring the academic armature of the university to reflect the world that we currently live in, not just the late 19th century Anglo-German world of siloed academic discipline, yep. English literature, history. Yep. Um, you know, if, if, if Scott is, uh, you know, if the, if the thesis is all's well, elite education, we have the stratified system and Scott is the antithesis, this whole system has become, you know, corrupt and sclerotic. Um, it seems to me you and certainly Sylvia as well are offering a synthesis. So what, what is that synthesis? synthesis he said yeah so so I, I like scott's story because he he was a ucla undergrad and so uh, on my desk i'm at home right now but my desk at the office has on it the the uh, catalog for the university of california at los angeles from august 10th 1950 and i use that as an inspiration of at that time uh, and ucla is a great university make no mistake about it but it's just not accessible uh and so and so the admission standards were at that time assessed to be this is what it takes to be able to have some chance of having a successful time going through college. And, and so it was not a 3.2 like Scott had. It was a 3.0. Did you have at least a B average? And did you take some of the courses they wanted you to take? And if you got in, the cost was zero. There was no tuition. And so we are doing everything we possibly can to build the modern version of that. And we have made huge progress. And so what's been difficult for us is that we every step we take, if you're big, you can't be any good. If you change your academic departments to become more reflective of transdisciplinary learning, then somehow you're producing interdisciplinary of transdisciplinary mental midgets. Uh, and so and so all those things are false and they're all verifiably false and they're all measurably false. Uh, but what we have is we have so much momentum around the notion of status, both for the faculty and for the students, that uh, every time you try to break away from that, it's just extremely difficult. Now, we've decided, and I, I I can't use all of the fine choice words that Scott uses, but I'd like to. And so, <laughs> and so, feels and so good. what I mean, good, Michael, yes, feels good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 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 so what well, I mean no, by that, no one can hear you curse. Yes. What I mean is, uh, so that's one of the reasons that we've decided to, to, to be what we are now, a world-class research university, world-class research university with 20,000 undergraduates that come from families on public support that have no that have incomes below you know $25,000 a year 20,000 of these individual students and then finding a way to make that work so Scott to your point you know our financial models are since we're not really supported very much by the government is how do we pay for kids to be able to come to the university to cover the actual cost while constraining the cost as much as we we can and that is goes back to what a public university was designed to do. It was designed to provide access to 
uh, uh, students from every family background have access to a great faculty to be able to move forward and do almost anything and to be unencumbered. And then I'll say one other thing. I apologize. And Scott, this goes to you and uh, Sylvia, you and I have talked a little bit about this. So we also decided, well, how unfair it was for so many people that went to college and didn't finish. That's why we did the Starbucks program. We've got 6,000 graduates now out of that program, no cost, no debt. We've got 18,000 students in that program, but even that wasn't enough. So now we built a thing called the Pathways Program. We don't care if you didn't graduate from high school. We don't care what your situation is. We have ways for you to earn your way into college if college is where you'd like to go. And we have ways for you to earn your way into certain careers if those are the directions that you would like to go. And our faculty, who are research-grade faculty of of world-class stature, want to do all of that. They have become super faculty. So for us, the main thing has been the the changing of the faculty-centric model to a student-centric model and the empowering of our faculty as super faculty, uh, able to, to educate at scale, educate with speed, be innovative, do research, have graduate students, have online students, uh, you know, have MOOC classes, have everything that you can possibly imagine. And it's just amazing if you empower them what they can do. I've been so proud of who they are and what they've been able to do. So we're working on it, Scott. It's not easy. So Sylvia, first, please, I want your views on this vital but fractious question. But two, given your own background and also given that AU is in the heart of Washington, uh, let's also shift gears a little bit as first, please add into this. And then the question of the relationship between government and higher education. Part of the most obvious of that has been uh, underwriting student loans or guaranteeing student loans, many of which have actually been used and abused by for-profit schools, not not. Uh, four-year undergraduate universities, but also in terms of the public service aspect. I mean, is how much of that should be a focus? I think Michael talks about it in a more localized sense. Uh, I think you've focused on it on a more national sense, but what's the, what's the nexus there? Could that be more national as opposed to, it obviously makes sense for AU. Is it a more uh, applicable model throughout the country? Well, I think um, I'll start, you know, our strategy, the strategy that we follow here at American University that I've been in place is called Change Makers for a Changing World. And it is in the DNA of the place that people come here with no indifference, passion. And it is about change, not just change in terms of public service and government, but sort of beyond into other fields, um, including like our performing arts. You, uh, our campus was the first campus in the country to be carbon neutral, the first university in the US to be carbon ne- neutral. And one of our students in the arts department wrote a score called Arboretum, uh, which was about, you know, to, to reflect, and that's how she expressed um, this issue. So I think that the role that we play in terms of, um, you know, the, the idea of success, and I think this gets to Scott's point about what are you, how do you measure the success of what you do uh, as, a, as a university? How do you think about what success is and how do you define that? And this idea and that's this concept that we're here for two reasons. We create knowledge and we disseminate knowledge for use. And I think the for use and for good use is a, a very important part of the picture that we can't lose sight of. And that we are trying to produce people who are, uh, for us, we think about it in terms of this changing the world. And we think about it in terms of the whole student and this concept, you know, Scott was kind of, and we've talked a little bit about what what uh, employers want and what employers need. And it's not just about uh, a credential. I, I think employers are going to have to keep coming to what is it that they want? They want skills like complex problem solving. Uh, we believe, and it's part of our strategy, it's called inclusive excellence, that if we send students and, and they come through American University 
and they haven't learned about an inclusive society, that, that we, we, are not, we aren't doing our job, that we can't be an excellent institution without those elements. And I think we need to bring those in. I think companies are more and more, as Scott was reflecting, they're going to have to move to a place where it is not credential-based, that it is about um, they're able to recognize not only through a credential as a proxy, but what are the skills and things that they need um, as we think through their workforce? But I do think you know, your question of should we be a place in our relationship with government and what should government's relationship be with higher ed? Um, certainly, I believe you know, we should be producing the people um, that are able to serve, but not just in government, across different fields. They should be the people who are leading and changing. That's a part of what we do. But I also think that government in its role needs to think about what are the needs and the needs that Scott was describing. When two thirds of the country doesn't have uh, an undergraduate degree, um, how do we think about that? When uh, I was on a, I served on a, a task force at one point and we focused on the investments needed from the federal government in the community college system uh, in terms of that, the questions of that access. Um, how do you create access for what people need? And I think we have a responsibility as each of us as individuals. We've partnered uh, with Trinity, not Trinity uh, in the North, but Trinity in Washington, D.C., um, to do a program to create credentials for early learning. The District of Columbia now requires that if you're going to be a person who's keeping children and doing early learning, that you have to have certain qualifications. And so we've created uh, we're working with another school that will do it face-to-face. -face. We'll do it online. And it's about us all coming together to think about what are those needs and how are we going to create access. American University is a private university, but we need to think about the ways. Um, I, I don't, uh, with the constraints of D.C., because of where we're located, I can't grow my numbers uh, in the way that, that Michael can uh, in terms of numbers. But what I can do are think of other ways to do that, other ways to provide that kind of access to try and get to um, you know, Scott uh, it is is right about this this question of elitism, scarcity, these concepts. That's not what we should be about at all. Um, as I said, we want to be excellent at what we do, sure. But this idea that we're exclusive and that we're trying to keep people out is just the opposite of what higher education should be out. You know, it shouldn't be this. It should be this. Um, as we think about how we are preparing students and the future of government. You know, people uh, are going to so be careful because if you keep talking about space constraints, Michael's sufficiently entrepreneurial. He's going to offer to build you a building in Tempe as a satellite <laughs> campus for AU. So well, you know. Michael knows that I, <laughs> I've been to visit to talk about those things. But it's, yeah. And I want to get into this question now because this forum, right, the Zoom, the Zoomaduma world of, of transmission of information and knowledge does open up. And, you know, Michael's been doing this for years. Scott, you've been thinking about this for years of uh, a much more wider scale transmission of knowledge, potentially uh, at the credentializing level. Right. You need certain things for early education credentializing. You need certain things to be uh, a social worker that may not require a four-year degree. The question is, if it's offered in this format, which is inherently an, you know, a lower cost as well as a wider reach, are universities, whether it's a private university like AU, whether it's NYU, whether it's ASU or anywhere else, does, the, does their cost structure allow for that? Meaning, can you offer a $200 course? You know, does, does, does the system implode if it moves out of Scott's rigid, 
you know, the antithesis framework of this is rigid, it's got a purpose, and it's got a price tag. And the price tag reinforces that purpose, which is not to educate everybody, it's to educate a really few number of people, because that's how we maintain scarcity. Could you do it? I mean, if you suddenly blew it up, but if not blew it up, add it on or, or change it. So Sylvia, and then I guess all of you should uh, sound in because we're kind of in the era of Zoom. And, and while a lot of this will go away and should go away, some of it won't go away and shouldn't. I think there are important lessons that, that we learned. And as I said, I, I brought on my chief online officer. We've been doing those kinds of programs and that kind of work um, at American for a number of years. And I believe it's an important part of how one thinks about um, the progress. I think what you have articulated in the question gets to one of the fundamentals, which is the economics of higher education has to change. And, uh, you know, the example that I have given at, at American is if you used the um, if you use the current, over the last 20 years, the rate of inflation in higher ed, and you extend that out for the next 20 years or next 17 years, you know, a child born today would end up paying, you know, at a private institution, it's hundreds of thousands. You know, the, the inflation, it's just, if you, if you actually extend it, it, it doesn't work. So I think, Zachary, we have to consider what are the fundamentals of the economics of higher ed and what has to change to get to the world that we're discussing where there can be this kind of access, where you can provide what you need. And technology, I think, is a helpful part of it. I think universities, how we think about the questions of um, there's first creating affordability and then the question of who pays. And I think we try and reverse those questions. And we always are focused on which are the extremely important issue of debt and that, that exists. But solving that problem at a point in time without solving the long-term issue that your question raises, which is how do we think about the future of economics of higher ed? And that has to do with the consideration of the value proposition. What do you get and what do you pay? And how do you evaluate, to Scott's point, um, how those two things to come together? What do you do to evaluate that what you get? You know, if you listen, if you listen heavily to uh, a very powerful force, not all powerful, but very powerful called the market, uh, you know, you, you, you see that there is uh, a market for biology majors out there. We have 6,000 biology majors. We're going to grow it to 10,000 biology majors. We have 2,000 biology majors online. One of our online biology majors was just admitted to the Mayo Medical School, one of the most uh, selective medical schools because they only have so many slots. Uh, but you know, we have a top 10 research unit in electrical engineering with 2,500 electrical engineering majors on campus and 2,000 electrical engineering majors online taking Star Trek level electrical engineering at an unbelievably low cost, an unbelievably low cost with the most advanced technologies that people have to carry out learning. But I have to stop listening to people that come and say, well, you can't, you know, people studying stuff online, there's nothing very good about that. So recently I should send out to all of you, we had a, a video done by some of our online biochemistry majors who got a letter from a elite university medical school saying they'd never admit anyone with an online degree because they don't know anything about leadership or teams or society. 40 of our students produced a video with their faculty who are in our online biochemistry program. One was a flight medic with already a college graduate working on helicopter rescues out of Colorado. One was an electrician's mate uh, in the bottom of the ocean in a, in a nuclear powered submarine working on their biochemistry. Half of them were nurses, you know, trying to find their way forward to understanding more chemistry and more science so they can move forward. The point of saying this to you is that there's all kinds of ways to change the cost model. 
we've changed the cost model dramatically. We've changed the cost model by generating up our revenue. So we've increased our tuition revenue from $125 million a year to $2.2 billion a year. And with that revenue, we've then invested in new technologies. We've invested in new methods, new ways of moving things. We've decelerated our rate of uh, cost increase. And so, Scott, you'll be happy to know that you know, the average net tuition for our uh, 45,000 undergraduates from Arizona is under $4,000 a year. Uh, and for half of them, it's zero. Uh, you know, there, there's, there's no net tuition for them. And so, and so we're, we're excited about the fact that you can gain financial control by realizing that you're existing in a market and in a marketplace for both your, your, uh, your graduates uh, and your, your technologies and your tools and everything else. So it just required us to move away from being dependent on the government, uh, move towards being what we call a public enterprise, using a public enterprise model for us moving forward. And then that changes all aspects of how we're able to operate financially also. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote, nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's a time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot there was labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> we, we hear that. Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. Scott, what do you think about, um, I mean, you could sit down with both of them and, and you could all create a kind of a, an even more robust set of online, you know, multidisciplinary tools. Could you, is it, you, you build it and they will come you start offering this and eventually those gain status and credibility, or is that kind of the absolute challenge here, which is you could, you can deliver the content, you can gear the education, but you can't change the, the status issue easily. I think American university and ASU are always going to have a certain brand halo that they deserve through great research and 
creating an atmosphere of learning and the investments they make in technology and their geography. You know, at NYU, we brag about how our applications have skyrocketed. The reason that NYU's applications have skyrocketed is because of Will and Grace and Rachel and Ross. And while the faculty will take full credit for it, it's because we're in Soho. We're blessed with geography where every 17-year-old girl and seven to 10 high school valedictorians and now girls wants to spend, you know, likes the idea of spending four years in NYU. So anyways, the credentialing, the brand, that warrants a price premium. But I think we're slowly but surely, just as the internet slowly but surely went in and picked apart every part of the newspaper, that first they went for the classifieds. Then they went for the car ads. Then they went for the movie listings. They just picked it apart piece by piece. I think we're going to see kind of this great unbundling of universities where people are going to say, okay, I don't have four years. I, I think about the elite MBA. I think it's the scarcest product in the world. And what I mean by scarce is global awareness and transformative value relative to its total market. Presidents, uh, 220 Fortune 500 CEOs, global recognition, and the total universe of full-time MBAs among the top 20 schools is about 8,000 people a year. Massive excess demand. So how do you offer, how do you offer pieces of that elite MBA to someone who says, okay, I am never going to be able to go to Wharton. I'm a single mother managing five Tiffany stores in Dallas. I make $110,000 a year. I'm, I don't even get invited to the big offsite at headquarters in New York, and I'm just never going to get an MBA. It's just out of my reach. Maybe I got three years through college, but I didn't graduate, but I'm great at what I do. I want the American dream. Uh, so is there, are there supply chain courses from instructors at elite business schools that I can take? Are there courses I can take where I can get some sort of micro certification? So I think we're about to see what happens with the internet when it comes into a sector. And that is, I think we're about to see an unbundling. The key will be, the key will be one, companies uh, deciding, uh, falling out of love with elite universities only for their on-ramp into their organizations. This ridiculous, drunken intoxication with luxury. We're going to need class traders. Michael is a class trader. My faculty would hate his guts. And he's saying, all right, I want to educate a ton of people. I am about expanding admissions. And if ASU doesn't resemble Hermes, that's okay with me. And that's what's called public service. So he would be unwelcome at the majority of elite universities. And then the other thing we have to wrestle with is that state funding has been flat for the last 30 or 40 years because, and I say this as a proud progressive, we're seen as not graduating, we're not graduating, we're graduating wokesters, not warriors. And uh, generally speaking, across our 50 states, 50% of the people who decide the budgets for state-funded schools are Republicans. And it's difficult for them to decide to increase the funding for what I'll call the woke machine. And when one and a half percent of the faculty of elite universities identifies conservatives, we're running up against a notion that, OK, we're not a place for provocative thought. And it results in, in my view, that the public, the people who fund these institutions have fallen out of love with us and they don't want to they don't want to fund. They don't want to continue to fund an ideology or a dogma that they think is specifically contrary to, to what they believe in. So. And, and and half the people that go to the public university don't graduate, so or more. 
Yeah, and our failure rate, right? Our our, our yeah. slippage rate, our decrease rate. So I think we're going to see the great unbundling. The mother, the mother of all chins, uh, has fists of stones coming coming forward. If you think about disruption, <laughs> disruption is essentially a function of have you raised prices faster than inflation with no underlying increase in productivity or outcomes. That literally defines American higher education in tier two schools. So I think COVID is that fist of stone. So far, I've been wrong. So far, it's only creating more strength. But I'm hopeful that innovators like Sylvia and Michael and the unbundling, and more specifically, the most important thing that's happened in higher ed in the last month was Tesla announcing that they're going to start hiring more people without college degrees. That is really important. That is the that is the consumer here, is the U.S. corporation. So we have to attack it on a variety of levels. And when you give money back to your university, uh, I've stipulated when I give money to UCLA and and Berkeley, I don't want it for financial aid. I don't want it to hire more faculty. I want more seats. I want more seats. Full stop. That's what it is. And so, okay. look, I, a lot of things here. I got one more question for the three of you briefly, and then we've got about 30 questions in the Q&A in 10 minutes. And I'm, obviously we won't get to all of them, but I'll try to cherry pick along. So one thing that clearly has been pandemic disrupted is the vast number of foreign students coming into the United States. In fact, I mean, all of you know this, but uh, U.S. education of foreign students was one of the fastest growing and robust U.S. export sectors, because within the way we keep these things, a Chinese student comes to the United States, it's actually an export of educational services to China. That was 400,000 students alone from China and more than a million from the rest of the world. Uh, between the difficulty of unbundling some of the immigration restrictions of the Trump years combined with COVID, combined with a generalizable sense that maybe the future of the world does not run through the United States and American higher education. Do you feel that is that going to be an anomaly as well? Or has that been a knocking a trajectory in a completely different direction in a way that's going to be somewhat financially challenging, but also culturally problematic? I was on the phone. I was on the phone yesterday with the Indian ambassador to the United States, and uh, you know, talking through a number of issues that we have, and the large expanding programs that we have, and joint ventures that we have. We see it as uh, you know, for those that are innovative and adjust and adjust timing and cost and and degrees and programs and uh, uh, work and so forth and so on. We we see no decrease in demand at all. In fact, we're not seeing any decrease. I think that it probably. I think that we're going to have to see uh, uh, where things go in, in terms of also how quickly we can get through some of the COVID. I mean, this is a critical year in terms of um, the question of the travel bans and, and that sort of thing in terms of the number of students. And this is for all all institutions because it's about their ability to actually come uh, to the U.S. And I think the question is um, how long this lasts and whether that has long-term impact in terms of people making different choices. Um, you know, you start making different choices and that could lead um, uh, to that. I think um, we all are seeking these students. It's important to, uh, you know, the all of us as universities, it's uh, important in terms of having to, uh, Scott's point about differing points of view, uh, in, in terms of that, there's the differing points of view politically, but there's also, you know, the value that our international students have to being on our campus, to being part of that, as well as our scholars. So I think we're at a point where I think it could be uh, for the institutions um, that are 
uh, pursuing it like Michael. You know, we are focused on it last year. You know, last year we didn't actually have a drop. We were very fortunate uh, in our international students uh, in terms of the numbers in our, our graduate and, and undergraduate. This year we're seeing uh, smaller numbers with the visas and those kinds of things. But I think what this means for the long term, this is going to be a critical year. And, uh, you know, we're all uh, focused with the administration on doing everything they can to lift some of the constraints that are constraints for all of us uh, and are impacting these numbers. So I think it's a critical year. So some questions from uh, from people uh, participating. One is the the degree to which, and Sylvia, I know American University had been test optional, but the degree to which this year has seen vast numbers of schools, largely by logistical issues, go to test optional. That's been ascribed for one of the reasons for the huge surge of applications. I don't know whether that's 100% accurate. Maybe you could, you know, and Scott, you might have some sense of that. I mean, is that a good thing for the democratization of higher education? Because there's been a lot of criticisms of testing over the years. So we, uh, American University has been test optional for many years. And we have, because we actually believe it is a part of the step uh, that, you know, we've been talking about in in terms of um, democratizing and creating that access. And, you know, what we found is, you know, that question of that trajectory of that student is a much better indicator. And it is, you know, when, when Scott was, uh, describing his own journey um, in, in terms of how people saw, you know, the real potential uh, in terms of that and that that's such an important thing. And so we've been test optional for, for many years. Um, we have not seen it uh, impact the, you know, the question of quality, graduation rates, all those things that people argue uh, that it would do, or, you know, even success in terms of employment and, and that sort of thing. You know, we're still at a place where 92% of our graduates are employed or in graduate school six months out, and that didn't change when we went test optional. Um, I do think it has impacted uh, the number of applications to um, schools, but um, Scott and, and Michael may have a different opinion, but I do think it did impact those schools that are now test optional and hadn't been. I think that um, it led to more applications for, for a number of those schools. Yeah, so Scott's two schools before he went there, UCLA and UC Berkeley, you know, they uh, had no SAT score or ACT requirement in the old days. They were great public research universities. They had no tuition. All they said was, did you take the courses that might help you be ready for college? And did you get at least a B in those courses? And if you got a B in those courses in 1950, you were admitted. And UC Berkeley in 1950 was already one of the greatest research universities ever built in the history of the world. Its faculty taught between four and six courses each in those years. Uh, there was heavy teaching, heavy engagement, deep research. And so what's happened is that we've we've allowed the faculty at many institutions uh, to become uh, spoiled. Uh, you know, they're they're just not focused on their core mission. And so this is why I was talking about our our uh, faculty just a second ago. I mean, so our faculty, through the empowerment of technology, through the empowerment of owning their own intellectual designs, owning the designs of their intellectual units, uh, we, you know, we've built 35 new uh, transdisciplinary schools and centers, a school of earth and space exploration, a school for uh, sustainability, a school of complexity, a school for the future of innovation in society, a school for human evolution and social change. Our faculty have designed those schools, built those schools, moved those things forward. And, and the reason I say all of this is that then those schools are now populated with kids who have either earned their way into the university by taking the right courses in, in high school 
come in from the community colleges by moving in from that direction, or now they're coming in, and this is important, Sylvia and Zachary and, and Scott, coming in through our Pathways program. That is, they're literally earning their way into the university. The SAT test and the ACT test are tangential to that entire process. They're, they're of no material value in even predicting outcomes. So, you know, the SAT score only predicts freshman grade point. Uh, it, for a B student, it doesn't predict graduation rate at all. Nothing. It, it, it's, a, it's of no material value to the, to the, to the process. It can, can give you some insights on maybe where to strengthen or take some additional courses or do this or do that, but it, it's not material to the success of the student. So there's a, a series of questions that people have had about student loans, and this is obviously kind of on the table in Washington now. It's been a particularly strong um, ask slash demand on the on the more progressive side of the aisle that there be widespread student loan forgiveness. Um, I know all of you have thought about this. I've done some writing about this. I mean, I happen to think that it's all lumped together as one big problem, but it's it, it's a very variegated problem between, again, the, the for-profit university, which which kind of preys on the credentializing needs of, uh, of either minorities or someone who's underemployed who goes into debt to get a degree that they then don't finish and then they're left with the loans versus someone taking on $22,000 a year for an NYU degree as an undergraduate. Those are, you know, I think those are radically different problems, the, the, the former being a severe problem and the latter perhaps not. That's just my, my own view on that. But I wonder, you know, do you feel like this is indeed something where the federal government should, as part of its year of spending, um, do some sort of moratorium or reset? Right now it's political pandering and it will produce no outcome that will benefit uh, the outcome of the society overall. The real problem we have is we have a poorly managed, poorly executed student loan program. Student loans should be for people going to college, uh, pursuing their college work, uh, having a chance to move forward. We should be incentivizing people to graduate. So most people that have student loans have no degree. So we should be talking about how to help them to finish their degree by perhaps giving them a different deal on their loan if they, if they, if they need one to move forward. We also have a number of failed for-profit universities, which have completely bastardized the entire student loan outcome. Uh, you've got uh, uh, schools that have uh, debt to degree ratios where you have uh, $150,000 of debt per degree across the uh, across the student body. I mean, these are these are things that have to be sorted out. Uh, and then there are also uh, failures in the system. We wish that we could be held accountable. So if people are coming in with low interest student loans backed up by the government to ASU, we want to be accountable for their success. So we need to be able to work with the government to have that student loan work because the outcome, both financial and life outcomes for the student is dramatically enhanced if they graduate. And if they don't graduate and they have that indebtedness, now you're talking real problems. So we have a student graduation crisis. We have a completion crisis. And then we have some loan sorting out to do. We've got everything, as you said, Zachary, into one pot. Uh, and we and we we call it a massive crisis when in fact, you know, you've got medical school loans in there and law school loans in there. You've got You've got loans for students that took out four hundred thousand dollars of loans to go to, to uh, you know, four years at uh, Harvard and two years at graduate school, and and so they thought that was the right calculation. Maybe it was, and so we've got to sort all of that out. All right. So final question, which is I'm going to give as the ultimate softball to Scott because someone asked it in the chat, so I thought I would do it. Which is, what do we think of tenure, and can these changes go on productively? under the conditions of a tenure system. You have 90 seconds to 
make a passionate soapbox. I'm playing the violin for you, Scott. Go ahead. There we go. Look, tenure, like like a lot of things, it started out as a great idea. We needed, when somebody said the the world might be round and not flat, we needed to provide them with protection. And in the humanities department, in the law school, people, when they say provocative things, deserve the license and the freedom and the protection to say provocative things and move our society forward. I'll speak for the business school. You know, the difference between gap one and gap two and deep water and blue water economics, no one is going to be burnt at the stake. And I believe that effectively tenure, we have social services or social nets for the poor uh, or the undereducated in the form of food stamps or unemployment. And now we have uh, social welfare for the overeducated in the form of tenure. I think it's a racket. I think it's ridiculous. I think it's nothing but a transfer of debt. Uh, tenure equals debt on young people who are now have seen their wealth cut in half. They used to control 19% of the nation's wealth. Now it's 9%. I work with the finest faculty in the world. A third of them should be put on an ice flow. Tenure is nothing but an excuse for them to be obstructionist and exceptionally overpaid as they're obstructionists such that a young person can't afford a house, can't get married, can't start a business. Tenure is the most corrupt union in the United States. And until we have class traders that say, look, you're good. I'm going to pay you a lot of money, but boss, you got to pull your weight. Similar to every household and every business in America, we are going to continue to transfer wealth from young people to incompetent people with PhDs. You know, when I uh, when I wrote that book 20 years ago called What's College For, which, you know, seems like a long time, but many of the issues, a la what Scott was saying and all of you, remain very similar, uh, although we may be at a disruption point. The, the pace of change to continue Scott's ice flow metaphor has been glacial at best in higher education. The joke was that I should have subtitled it or why I can't get a job. Can't being the double entendre of can't, won't, and can't, no one would ever hire me. So there is that, you know, continual issue of higher education. It's, it's need to be heterodox and the drive to be orthodox. And, you know, I think these questions are so fascinating and crucial, you know, that, that higher education ends up being this chrysalis of who are we, what are we, what are we going to be, and what are our aspirations. And the one thing I can say from this conversation, and I'm not just saying it because we've had it, I'm saying it because I actually think it, is that, you know, the passion and energy that all of you have, both in the, you know, in Scott's sense of outrage at how things are, but also in the sense of constructive outrage about, look, we, we could do so much better. You know, and Michael, you are doing so much better. And Sylvia, you are, you, you are a newer entrant into this, but are now passionately part of it. Um, you know, my hope is that, that, that all of you act as exemplars that move this sort of weird lumbering, hopefully not Titanic ship forward in a constructive way. And I think higher education in the United States remains with all of its problems, one of the signal achievements collectively of us as a culture that that is a real powerful strength um, that I hope all of you remain central to and that we're all sort of part of. And, you know, part of the point of launching this Progress Network again is let's pay attention to what we're going to do to move ourselves forward constructively and not waste huge amounts of time, either convinced that everything is going to hit the shoals and sink 
or, or focused endlessly, not on what we're going to do about it, but on what can't be done. And I think all of you are, you know, in various ways, but really constructively focusing on that. And I'm really privileged to have had this conversation for all of those who are listening. Please sign up for the newsletter. We keep doing these events and this will be posted in various and sundry platforms in the coming weeks. So, and thank you, Emma Varva Lucas, as usual. Thanks everyone. Good night. To find out more information about the Progress Network and what could go right, visit theprogressnetwork.org. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter to stay up to date with everything happening with the Progress Network. If you like the show, please tell a friend, share an episode, or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. What Could Go Right is hosted by Zachary Carabell and me, Emma Varva-Lucas. We're produced by Andrew Steven. Jordan Aaron is our production coordinator, executive produced by Jeff Ombro and the Podglomerate. Thanks so much for listening.